Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. I hope this episode finds you well. Today's guest is Robert Halfon, Chair of the Commons Education Select Committee. And what a time to be talking to him. And I'll say this at the start, if you check on the show notes, whatever device you listen to this on, just look at the blurb, because I've put a link to the Commons Select Committee report, written over, published over six weeks ago, that saw this whole thing coming with the exams fiasco. The whole report is concerned about the downgrading, particularly of disadvantaged kids' grades. Their concerns with the algorithm are all laid out there. It's an easy report to read. I appreciate that of an evening you'd rather watch... Um, I don't know, Selling Sunset or Ozark or you'd rather read a book. But if, I mean, it's just an incredible thing to read. In relatively recent retrospect, this report that is clear on what the problems are going to be. Uh, and we talk about that report with Robert. I say we, me. Uh, we talk about it. Uh, and also some of the other work of the committee. And his background. Uh, and he's a fascinating guy. And uh, his view on where the Conservative Party needs to be. And even what the logo should be, we talk about. Um, we talk about him being born with cerebral palsy. Those The operations he needed left him with osteoarthritis. Um, and we just talk about his general political philosophy. But on education and on the detail of the problems of the last fortnights and, and slightly longer, this is absolutely brilliant. This is, as with the Tom Tugendhat episode, a chair of a select committee who knows the issue inside out, giving us uh, a, a detailed briefing on the problems. And the report is there should you wish to read it. I began by asking Robert, I think I asked the same question to Tom Tugendhat, how difficult is it to chair a select committee and to hold the executive to account during a time like this. Well, it's a pretty difficult uh, to do that, but it's harder being in government. It is uh, sometimes easier to ask the questions and focus on what is wrong uh, to be a powerhouse of ideas than the actual governing, uh, especially in the times of a uh, national pandemic, coronavirus, of which none of us have ever seen in our lifetimes. Do you feel, you know, select committee proceedings have a particular intensity about them and people obviously think of the Murdoch one, uh, Bob Diamond. You know, there are various ones, the, the um, liaison committee, whenever the prime minister's in front of it. Are you kind of robbed of that intensity at a time like this? Doing it over Zoom doesn't quite put the people you're holding to account on the spot in the same way. Actually, we've had some pretty good sessions. Uh, I've been surprised that we could all do it and it worked really well. I was a shielded person for, for 19 weeks and um, it was uh, pretty uh, strange being at home. I'd never been at home for so long, yeah. um, but uh, it worked really well. And we, we, we got the stuff out there 
we had some significant sessions with the Secretary of State, with ministers, with uh, Ofqual, with Ofsted. Um, so it, it can be done. Nothing is ever as electric. It's a bit like watching a football match at home or being in the room at the time. It, there's no comparison, but we, we did it. But you don't feel that the, the quality of the information you get is necessarily compromised then as a result of not having that, that intensity in the room? I think, no. I think we were able to question the witnesses, except for one, the, the um, chief executive of the Institute for Apprenticeships. And her uh, internet wouldn't work properly all the way through. And apparently we'd asked them to do a dress rehearsal, but they didn't do it. Um, it was really, really annoying. I understand these things happen because... I've had rubbish Wi-Fi in my house uh, for like 10 years until I had some incredible guy come around and sort it out after 10 years of problems. Um, and I only did that because of lockdown. I put up with it for ages. Um, but nevertheless, it was really annoying because we couldn't, I just had to end the session with her because it was just ridiculous. But on the whole, 95% of the time, it's been pretty good. And what happens in a situation like that then? Do, will she just submit written evidence or is just- Well, we'll get her back. It? we'll get it back but the problem is with the committee because it's all being done on uh, zoom uh it's all sort of like the truman show so to speak um uh you you only have limited hours you have to bid for broadcasting slots from the house of commons authority and you're only given certain hours and times so i can't just say let's say i wanted you in actually that's a good idea maybe i'll get you in. <laughs> um, uh uh you can't just we've got to organize it weeks in advance and uh, the I didn't understand the technicalities are huge and the broadcasters have to do an enormous amount of work. Cause I, at the beginning, I said to the chief clerk, who's brilliant. I have amazing, they're amazing officers on the committee, sort of civil servant side of it. And I said to him, can't we just get a Bluetooth speaker from Curry's and but it, it can't, it just doesn't, it can't be done like that. And um, it is amazingly technical and uh, difficult, but they've done it. And I have to say, I have nothing but massive praise for the House of Commons broadcasting team. They had to go in. I mean, my the senior officer was going in, uh, the committee, the senior clerk was driving in, for, I think, from Winchester every day to get to whenever we had sessions to make sure it was done properly. Uh, uh, the, you know, they are, uh, they are the unsung heroes and people don't know about them because they just see the MPs, but the officials and the clerks and so on the people who keep the, keep the thing ticking over and the broadcast technicians are pretty, have been pretty amazing during this, during this lockdown that's an interesting point about the broadcast slot because ordinarily would you just be able to convene a committee at fairly short notice and, and get evidence yeah uh, if i wanted a committee uh, in normal times i would just ask all the other members because you've got to get agreement i'm not some grand uh you know saddam hussein like figure uh, doing what i want i hope not anyway I hope not. um <laughs> Uh, but um, we have to get everything is agreed by all the members. We have a, uh, and uh, But they would agree pretty quickly. And we'd say we need an urgent session. It could be done. Just book a room. But this is very, very different. You have to really prepare and plan. So a report you put out in, uh, in July, which it feels from my reading of it, like you saw this all coming, was called Getting the Grades They've Earned, COVID-19, the Cancellation of Exams and Calculated Grades. And what runs through this report, and maybe I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you saw the problem with standardization months ago and were deeply concerned about the algorithm. You thought it would punish disadvantaged children and, um, and you've been proved right. Is that, is that a fair, quick assessment of the report? Everything we've done, I mean, everything I've tried to do as Select Committee Chair since I took uh, the first time in 2017, after the 2017 election, was re-elected this time round after 2019, was to try and address social injustice in education and set out a... Uh, what I call a ladder of opportunity for and all the reports we've done have been on those things social justice and skills and that's what we were trying to focus on what would the impact be and we said three key things really in that report one that the standardization model could impact on disadvantaged and also lead to, or, to overgrading and undergrading um, but particularly uh, impacting the disadvantaged and secondly, we said that actually this standardization model, the algorithm that no one understands, and you have to have a brain the size of a planet to work it out, um, should be subject to public scrutiny. So we said to Ofqua, why don't you publish this so that everyone can have a look at it who understands how these things work? And then, of course, if you need changes, then the, you'll make the changes to make it better. It wasn't to have a go at them or anything. And the third thing was we were worried about the appeal system. So... Mm -hmm. I thought that 
if you were a child of a Supreme Court judge, you might just about work out how the off-qual appeal system was going to work and manage the uh, manage it and maybe get an appeal. But if you're an ordinary person who wasn't um, well-heeled or sharp-elbowed, you would have a problem. And originally, they said that the appeal system would only be based on bias and discrimination. Now, who on earth? I mean, who on earth is going to prove that in an exam grade? I mean, it's, it's, even now when I think of it, I still can't work it out why they chose that category. And they refused to change it. And then that was changed by the DFE or Ofqual or both of them in the last 24 hours before the exam results um, came out. And... Uh, uh, I, I couldn't understand why they just couldn't have an appeal system where you are a student, you think you're unfair, you go to your head teacher, the head teacher signs it off to make sure it's a fair appeal and not spurious, and um, you get it appealed, what the, what the issue was. And uh, it, wasn't, it didn't turn out like that. I think a lot of the problems could have been sorted if, even if the algorithm had wrong, if they'd worked out a really fair appeal system from the beginning and a quick one. And they prepared for it weeks in advance. There's some uh, brilliant detail in your report, which I'd like to go into. But just at, at the outset, what strikes me as quite odd about this whole problem is that the Conservatives have always believed in putting power in the hands of the providers, of trusting GPs to run the NHS, of trusting teachers, of trusting uh, head teachers. You know, think of the philosophy behind free schools and even grant maintained schools and, and education reforms of previous Conservative governments. It just seems so odd. This seems totally counter to Conservative Party philosophy to kind of not trust teachers to know what their kids should have been getting in terms of their grades. I think it is important to have a check and balance in the system. And what perhaps should have happened was that you mark the teachers mark the grades and then there would have been some kind of independent assessor which would have double checked it uh, to see whether it was an over prediction or an under prediction or whether it was fair. Um, but there was another, another thing. I mean, I, I, my family, we were, were conservatives. And not, they weren't political like me. I was a sort of strange child that decided to be an MP when I was 10 years old, having gone to the House of Commons, genuinely. But the, what we were always taught was about individual effort, education, aspiration. That's everything what conservatism is supposed to be about. And then you get up that ladder. And then what this system did, the, the algorithm. So instead of rewarding students for individual attainment and their own individual achievement it, it kind of implemented some weird collective model the collective memory of the school um if it had been a failing school or a school with difficulties or if it had a, a uh, classes that were co cohorts that in the previous years had done badly and so it was saying to that individual student we're not going to base it on your own individual achievement we're going to base it on the collective memory of the school that is profoundly unconservative everything what conservatism is not supposed to be uh, about so um that is why i mean one of the reasons why this was so un, unjust i just had a parent who contacted me literally five minutes ago because she was very anxious her daughter um was doing uh, was predicted a a she's had consistent a's all through the year and everything done brilliantly for some bizarre reason got a c in this have not done the know. exam and thank God, because of the change, she's now got an A. Surprise, surprise. And she's able to go to the college of her choice. But the, the mother was uh, understandably incredibly anxious. This is why the system was so unfair. Just bef before we move on from um, Ofqual, uh, when you asked in, in the report for um, them to publish details of its standardisation model and uh, you know, put all that out there, are you satisfied that they have put everything they need to put out into, into the open now for scrutiny? They should have published it before. We got a reply from Ofqual to our committee. I think about, I may be wrong, but I think it was only 10 days or so before the exams came out. Should have been much earlier. Um, I thought that they kind of felt that the committee was a sort of a bunch of annoying hobbits, basically, from the Shire. And um, I happen to love Tolkien, by the way. I'm a bit of a fanatic, so excuse me if I use meta Tolkien metaphors. But and they just, uh, you know, just some annoying MPs and we'll just do what we want, basically. And um, uh, they did sort of publish some 300 page document on the day of the exam results. Um, but, you know, this is after the horse has bolted, so to speak. This is all too late. And it's now subsequently emerged that the Royal Statistical Society, respected body, chief executive got in touch with me, offered them help. 
with their algorithm and they basically said no. Um, they said uh, put such stringent conditions on them in terms of non-disclosure for years and years and all statistical sites is a transparent organization it, what they weren't able to do it uh i i genuinely don't understand what has gone on and um you know that's why we're going to try and learn the lessons from this in our committee and find out who said what when and why and what questions were asked there's a an alarming quote in your report and it's remarkable reading this knowing what happens subsequently from michelle meadows who has an incredible job title of Deputy Chief Regulator and Executive Director for Strategy, Risk and Research at Ofqual. And she says there is some evidence of bias. For example, in A-level grades, there is evidence that bias with regard to ethnic minorities interacts with the ability of the students. For the most able students, there tends to be underprediction of the grades that students go on to get. At lower levels of ability, you get the reverse effect where there is some overprediction. So it sounds like they thought the problem was going to be the other way around, that... that um, students with lower grades were going to find them inflated and talented students were going to have those brought down. Yeah, so um, all the evidence we had was that disadvantaged students would be penalised against, you know, survey after survey. You know, we know from the Sutton Trust, for example, that a thousand high-achieving disadvantaged students are penalised against every year. Only 16% of those who go to university have the correct predicted grades, you know. So, um, and also we know that uh, BAME groups are, uh, often um, uh, unfairly predicted against, uh, you know, predicted a much worse grades than they actually get. Um, so this is a problem, but there was, there is also a problem with over prediction. Um, but this is why we wanted the model published so that there could have been really good scrutiny that uh, real experts who understand all this thing could have offered um, support for it. Because I, as I say, I'm not against the principle of checks and balances. Um, and I do think you need a national standard for grades. Although I do now, this is this is the hindsight bit. Although we recognise a lot in our report, but the hindsight bit is perhaps it would be better not to have an algorithm at all because computers always, you know, are never a foolproof. That you could have had, you should have just had the, um, the grade assessed by the teacher and then an independent assessor checking it off, perhaps in another school or an Ofsted inspector or whoever it may, retired teacher, whatever. And they would have said yay or nay and marked the grade up and down and presented that to um, the, the examiners. I think that might have been a much better, fair way. In fact, when I did my degree, this is now a long time ago, my master's degree was marked internally, given a grade, and then um, it, was, it, uh, it was given a mark externally, it had to be sent away. And, and that might have been whether it was feasible to do that, there was enough manpower, I don't know, but that might have been an option. Accuracy is something that, that you're concerned about in the report, and as you say, the Sutton Trust, kind of a thousand high-achieving disadvantaged students have their grades underpredicted per year. One line that really jumped at me was, in particular, high-attaining disadvantaged pupils are more likely to be underpredicted compared to those from more affluent backgrounds. I mean, this isn't just about an algorithm, isn't it? This says something about the way that disadvantaged children are viewed by individuals in positions of power, whether that's teachers or at the regulator? Well, I think it's uh, a lot of it. Is, I think it's unconscious. It's got what's called unconscious bias. I don't like this kind of jargon, but um, I don't think people do this on purpose, to be fair. And I think most teachers and support staff are passionate about getting their kids learning. But it's just a matter of fact, and it happens. I mean, I, I remember doing interviews. When we released a report, I did two days of interviews. And um, people ask me why, and I didn't know the answer to that, uh, but it, we just know it happens. Um, and if you know it happens, then you've got to make sure that your policies or your, uh, that, that doesn't make that happen. So you can't have a situation where you have private schools um, doing really well out of this. Not that I'm against private schools at all. I went to one. My father was an immigrant here with nothing, sent me to a private school. I'm very proud of it. I, I would be very happy to go to a state school, but that's his was his decision. But you can't have a system where private schools that already have all the privileges um, get massive boosts in their grades, and and kids from a state school through no fault of their own um, are penalised. Your report and a lot of the coverage has obviously been about Ofqual specifically and their internal practices and the decisions they made. But the Department for Education has to take some responsibility for this, doesn't it? Oh, they have to. Yeah, absolutely. I think the problem is there has been so many fingers in this algorithm pie. You don't know where to start. And it's not been a very nice pie. And um, 
Ofqual, uh, Department for Education. I mean, what on earth has been going on? And, uh, you know, I'm a, a loyal conservative, um, but uh, I'm really, really disappointed with what's gone on. Uh, I think it is, it's pretty appalling. It's a massive mess. I think that the problem with this, it's not just a Westminster Village story. Um, it is uh, something that has affected the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of students, parents, school teachers uh, over the past couple of weeks and for no and not through their fault either just the fault of the failure of the so-called big state and you know you just take the BTEC example which I find really depressing because it is symptomatic of how we regard vocational qualifications in this country that no one was talking about BTECs at all uh, and also that um uh, Ofqual in their announcement on the weekend, I think B, they got one line or one little tiny mention, BTEC. And now students who are getting their exams, are supposed to be getting their exams, uh, sorry, the BTEC qualifications today, don't even know now. We don't even know. I think it's a week or so's time they'll get it. Now, if you're a student, I hated exams when I was a kid. You cannot imagine. I was on the Pro Plus uh, by the bucket load. Um, I was up all night. I had sleepless nights waiting for my results. I found it a very nerve-wracking experience, to be honest. And uh, if I put myself, if I imagine myself, uh, you know, when I was uh, 18 or 16 or whatever, and think that oh, I'm waiting for the results and the night before I'm told I've got to wait another week, I'd have gone, done, gone mad. And you, what I find really depressing is that we're not, we, we don't seem to be as a government showing any empathy with all these thousands of individuals whose lives have been affected because of incompetence in essence and uh, that is very sad and we can't be a government by technocrats we've got to be a government that empathizes with ordinary folk up and down the country and that's what i hope the prime minister was going to do when he got elected in 2019 but he's he's barely been visible this last week well, to be fair to the guy, I mean, he gets criticism for going on holiday. Every prime minister gets criticism for going on holiday. There's always something. I have no problem with people going away. I think, actually, I wish people would go away a little bit more because I do think it, 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 people come back much better. Yeah. I went to the Lake District, this wonderful place called Wasdale, uh, a week or so ago, and I just was so happy and come back a different person just uh, being there. And so uh, I don't have a problem with him being away, but when he's there... I want him to take the thing by the scruff of the neck. I want him to lead. I want him to be a prime minister. I want him to set out a national long-term plan for education. Uh, you know, we, everything has been focused around the economy and health. Uh, I want the prime minister to say education is as important and we're going to make it the best education. This is our vision for addressing social injustice, addressing our skills needs, improving standards, supporting the profession. Uh, you know, really show that he's got a passion behind it. And I don't mean just to hear, getting up doing an announcement of his, we'll lob a few million or a billion here and a billion there. I love all that. We need more money, absolutely. But um, you can't have a education kind of policies, which are just a whole series of clothes pegs without a washing line. There has to be a narrative and a plan that links it all together. And what about the Secretary of State then, Gavin Williams? So very few allies, it seems, at the moment, um, inside or outside the party. I mean, do, do you rate him before all this? Did you think he was a competent Secretary of State? Well, um, the thing I do think that um, he does understand completely is further education and skills. He went to an FE college and he made a very good speech a few weeks ago on the, the need to have much more support and investment into FE and get move away from this obsession about 50% of students going to university. Um, and, and I thought that is very, very important. Clearly, things have gone badly wrong. They, they will need to answer for it. Um, uh, but I've tried to stay away from, say, appointing Boris Johnson's next cabinet. It's one, it's not my brand of politics. I just always try and focus on the issues and help and try and improve things uh, if they do go wrong. Uh, the politics of it, uh, you know, you can't disentangle the politics from it. What is so remarkable is... This happened in Scotland a week before, and everyone saw this train crash happening. And I just wonder if they, why didn't they at that point say, well, we don't want to have to go through that and, and change course? Well, I think they thought that the, um, 
and it's this is a fairly true point that although it did impact on the disadvantage it wasn't at the same scale of um of scotland uh, but nevertheless it impacted on thousands of students but what they thought it wasn't going to be in the same way and then they thought they reacted to it by saying okay we won't just have an appeal system based on bias and discrimination we're allowed you to appeal uh, uh regarding your marks and i didn't think that was wide enough and i made that point at the time because also lots of students who didn't do mocks or did partial mocks or may have had i remember getting an e in a mock because i didn't do any work and then i got an a in the o level i now sound really old (laughs) um uh, but you know so uh, it was uh, that's why i I mean the mock thing wasn't perfect but at least it was a step forward but i suspect that's why they thought the mock thing would be enough i totally agree on mocks i mean no one I didn't try at all for my mocks. I mean, that you, to, if you ever thought they were going to be taken into consideration, most people would try a lot harder. You think, I mean, obviously some students do take them seriously yeah. and they should, and that's good. But I think most of us, I mean, I remember mine, they kind of, I kind of did enough, but I didn't apply myself with the same intensity and, and devotion that I did my final exams. And even then, I, you know, I could have done better in those. But I, when they started talking about mock exams, I just thought they were bound to have to change that because... It's unfair. It'd be like it'd be like taking someone's pace, you know, judging the hundred meters on a warm up yeah. or something. It's just yeah. not serious. I mean, I think it was a step forward, but again, I go back. I just don't understand why they, if they had set this in train weeks before, and said anyone can appeal, subject to uh, agreement by the head teacher, and we will have enough people to do those appeals, set that all in train, uh, then we might have, you know, they might have got through this. But then any appeals, I mean, the, I mean, imagine you, you rightly described the, the stress of the pro plus and the coffee and then being told it was going to be a week later. Imagine them being told you got to go through some bureaucratic appeals process as a kid. You'd just be, it would just, it would be unbearable for people. Yeah. And the time it would, it would take. I just thought it was, well, it, if it had had a very fast turnaround for those who were appealing, I thought it might've been a solution, but clearly I, when I realised the Scotland thing, we were going to have to go down the Scotland route, was when on Saturday night, last Saturday night, it seems like a year ago now, but on last <laughs> Saturday night, I was in the Lake District and I was supposed to be doing a BBC interview. And I kid you not, I started to read all the off-board guidance late at night to try and learn it all that was up on their website that had gone up late afternoon on the Saturday uh, so that I knew would know what I was talking about when I, uh, and because it had only just been put up. And I wake up in the morning, it's all gone. It's unbelievable. I, I, absolutely unbelievable. And then the Ofqual put on their website, um, this now no longer is the correct information. We will put, put up uh, further information after discussing with the board. And you'd think they would have discussed with the board in the first place before putting up. And I just, uh, and then I thought, am I dreaming? Have I gone insane? Like I literally, was I looking at the wrong website? I genuinely didn't understand. And I had to look, there's a brilliant uh, journalist in the Telegraph called Camilla Turner. And uh, she had had an original report about all the measures, which I also had read when I was preparing. And then I realised, and then she had changed the report. So I realised, oh my God, this was a major effort, basically, mess up. And uh, at that point, I realised this is absolutely, I mean, I knew it was pretty shocking before, but this was beyond the pale, what was going on. Um, and uh, that, uh, that it was in that morning I realised there was no other option to go down the Scotland than Scotland. And were you talking to the Secretary of State and the Prime Minister? You know, as a Conservative Chair of the Education Select Committee, an influential and, and learned colleague, were you saying to them, even informally, this isn't going to work? Yeah, well, I haven't spoken to the Prime Minister about this. Um, I, I've had uh, one or two conversations with Gavin Williamson in the sense that he has informed me what is going, uh, what his latest plans are. Um, but with the way we work really is through the committee and we hope that the government ministers read them, take, take the advice from them. We have them before our committee, of course. Um, you know, you can only hope that they don't just put it on a shelf uh, and think, oh, you know, as I say, uh, oh God, some annoying Hobbit MPs again. You know, but remember the Hobbits weren't too bad in, in uh, getting rid of the Dark Lord and so on, you know, Sauron. <laughs> This is one of the things that's... I'm fairly small size myself. (laughs) (laughs) But what's remarkable is Gavin Williamson said he was only aware of these problems at the weekend, but your report was published weeks ago and it it outlines all these problems. 
So that perhaps... Well, it's not just us. There's a former Director General of the Department for Education now. That's in the newspapers today. So this is what we need to find out. What on earth has gone on? You know, what on earth has gone on? And were the right questions asked? Were they listened to? Yeah, we just don't know. It's a failure of, of, of all of them, to be honest. Lots, this is a lot. the problem, isn't it? Is, is this a situation we had, almost like with the financial crash, where you have the Treasury, the Bank of England, uh, you know, the financial uh, standards, whatever it was, you know, all the different, and you've got Ofqual, Ofsted, the Department for Education, and certain organs think that it's someone else's responsibility? Is this, is this a, well, it's a, a, bit like a side effect of that? Yeah, it's a Ben-Hur movie. It's a cast of thousands involved in all this. And, and this is the issue. And, and Ofqual, are they independent of the government or not? Are, so clearly what decision has to be made, because I don't know if they're independent. They're refusing to answer any press questions at the moment. I mean, the Sun newspaper told me, and they tweeted about it, that they refused to respond to them. Other newspapers have told me the same. They have something like 10 communications officers. That is genuinely outrageous. The Sun is the biggest red paper, I think, in the United Kingdom. Other newspapers should be treated with respect. Um, they are accountable to the public as well as Parliament. They're paid by, their money is paid by the taxpayer. And uh, they sort of put a Berlin Wall around them. Um, I, uh, I just genuinely don't know. And it's clearly then there's going to be, have to be major reform. And either it's genuinely independent or it's brought within within the government and so the government then had to take responsibility because if the buck stops with the government then clearly Ofqual is not independent. People will be slightly worried won't they you know at the weekend we found that Public Health England is going to be abolished and now Ofqual are getting blamed for this. Is there a danger that it creates an impression that this is a government that doesn't take personal responsibility for its actions whether it's Dominic Cummings not taking responsibility for breaking lockdown rules or Matt Hancock not taking responsibility for what's happened with health and, and now Gavin Williamson not taking responsibility for what's happened with education? Well Public Health England are being reformed to another body with a new name so um, I think it's still going to be pretty big and have some you know pretty big muscle behind it and I know about that because they're supposed to be moving to Harlow my constituency um, as a result of your personal lobbying uh five years of lobbying uh, but it was announced in 2015 but the new body will probably move to harlow um uh, and um in fact george osborne came to announce it in 2015 but it's a new body and uh, hiving some of it off the edge so so i don't have a problem with that i think in terms of the off wall thing i as i say i think so many people are, have made this mess so i'm, I'm not just saying it's off i'm not just saying it's the government i think it's a mixture that things one thing has gone wrong after the other and it's a failure of um of governance absolutely but i think there was you know i i wouldn't absolve Ofqual of the blame just as i wouldn't absolve what's happened in the department of education of, of the blame quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Neither. There's so many brilliant bits. So it's amazing reading this report now, in retrospect, knowing what happens, because you, you kind of see it all happening. There's a remarkable detail in there about trajectory and Ofqual's decision not to include trajectory effectively in the algorithm, which would disproportionately punish poorer communities where schools are being turned around and grades are improving at a faster rate because they're starting from a lower base. I mean, on what basis would they exclude trajectory? It seems like a logical thing to build into the algorithm well this is the problem we we haven't had any art of did send us a tick box reply 10 days ago 
but you haven't had any proper response from Ofqual. Why haven't they done a press conference? To answer, you should be you should be having them on your podcast. Um, uh, you know, well, they if the should, sun can't get them, I'm not sure they'll go. But, but, you know, they ask, be, I will ask. You know, they they have, there's a lot of people in that building, and there are a lot of people paid very big salaries, six figure salaries, and they have lots of communications officers. They should be answering these questions, and they can't. Uh, I, I mean, it's I, I it's just completely wrong that they have now uh, turned off all press inquiries. So in essence, all that is going to the Department of Education. So they they're, what they're saying is, no, we're not an independent body, even though it says on their website they're an independent regulator. There was another issue you, you raised with Gavin Williamson, was um, the possibility of summer camps effectively funded by the government. But has anything happened with that? Well, I find enough. I went to a summer school yesterday in my constituency, in Parsonal School, where they had the STEM Learning Academy. Amazingly, kids going in rather than just having fun at, on holiday they literally volunteered to go in and do extra physics lessons wow I, mean, I wouldn't have done that i was terrible <laughs> at physics not in a million years not in my summer holiday and it was in, it was wonderful to see these really wonderful to see and heartening genuinely doing five hours of physics a day for a week a few good few days with the stem learning academy and others there was a, another part of the school they had physical activities going on uh, which was brilliant but I would have liked to have seen a kind of nightingale type operation where you would have had summer schools and catch up programs, like uh, schools set up, sort of pop up schools set up all over the country. Uh, not just for learning, by the way. I massively believe we've got to have the, the academic side, but mental health, well being, support, getting kids back to school. Now, that will be happening in some areas. Uh, Essex is quite good, my local, my local council and but it's not going to be happening across the board. And I think that's a missed opportunity. I wish that you see, when I go back, you know, that everything's been focused on health and the economy, trying to avoid destitution and avoid death. And where has education been in all this? You know, just imagine if uh, Boris or the education said from the beginning, we're going to have Nightingale schools. and We're going to make sure we will give every school teacher a voucher so they can go to their local curries and buy a SIM card or a computer. Um, not have some crazy national procurement scheme that takes weeks to get computers out to everyone. Uh, we are going to make sure that every child is learning for six, at least five or six hours a day online. Uh, we will get Ofsted to help with the safeguarding issues and work with the schools. But uh, none of that happened. We had millions of kids not learning. Despite there were some brilliant efforts by individual schools, teachers, support staff, and I won't take that away from them. And they deserve every credit. But the fact is, millions of children haven't been learning during the lockdown. And is that just bandwidth that the department uh, was was consumed, perhaps, with with what they uh, has become a fiasco over exam results, or do they not just perhaps think? I think it's a mixture of things. Um, I don't know. It wasn't just again. It's not just the Department for Education. I mean, what were Ofsted doing? So Ofsted said no inspections. Understood. Why? Who on earth can have an inspection during lockdown? But why on earth didn't they, didn't she lead from the front, the leader of Ofsted, and say, um, we're going to work with schools, be, be sort of friend of ourselves as a critical friend, but help in, if you have safeguarding issues, if you don't have enough computers or whatever it may be, um, um, we will help you to make sure your kids are learning at home. And uh, it is, to me, incredible. And then, of course, you had sections of the unions, not all. And I'm a union member, by the way. I'm not anti-trade union at all. I wrote a book, a pamphlet once, called Stop the Trade Union Bashing. Um, I, uh, but sections of the unions were doing everything possible to stop going back to school. And I think that was wrong as well. They had all these players. And in the meantime, millions of kids not learning, not having contact with teachers, suffering from mental health issues, suffering safeguarding issues, not having computers at home. Uh, going on it's been one of the worst possible years uh, in terms of young people I think partly because of the coronavirus partly because of the way the the, uh, the players responded the sort of educational the uh, big players responded to it all with anything like that which would be a big scheme really you need political will you need someone around the cabinet table who's making the case for that and carving out that space so it kind of suggests that Gavin Williamson wasn't particularly animated or, or the, the ministers re, re involved didn't think 
that Nightingale schools or, or that sort of thing was a particular priority? Well, I, I don't know the reasons why they didn't do it. Um, I know you're trying to get me back to the point. In oh, I'm not, but I'm just, I'm just thinking um, in reality, politicians have to, well, you know, if, I do if, think if, I just if you'd wish, have been in there, I, I bet it would have been different. Well, I'm a campaigner. I mean, that has uh, advantages and disadvantages, but I love campaigning and on my gravestone, it will say he's a grand campaigner. It's in my blood. And I would have, you know, it's, having said that, it's easy to say with hindsight. So, you, you know, you can be captain hindsight on all this. And it's hard to underestimate, to be fair to the government, the difficulties that they face because we're in a national pandemic, national emergency, schools were closed. Everyone was in a panic in the early days. It was, you know, it's hard to believe now, but 23rd of March, lockdown, uh, they had to get the schools closed. They had to do the free school meals thing. They did set up the Oak Academy, the online Oak Academy with teachers, which is brilliant. Um, they got the Eden Red Voucher thing, which was very difficult to trick it first, but it worked. So uh, it is easy, as I said at the beginning, it's sometimes easier to point these things out and be a kind of armchair thing. But I wish um, uh, I wish more had been done for all kids uh, to make sure they got they learned during the lockdown. I think it is it's, it genuinely we've got an ep- potentially an epidemic of educational poverty uh, in our country. All the issues around COVID have really highlighted the strength of the select committee system that we have here in the UK. Jeremy Hunt was highly influential, used his position as chair of the Health Select Committee. You've been very vocal um, and um, including critical of your own side over this thing. I mean, it must be so... I mean, you're in a position of great influence and responsibility, but there must be times when you sit there and think, I'd just be better if I was Secretary of State for Education because then I'd be able to actually make these changes. Um, The problem with... uh with that i love the committee role it's the best job i've ever had in politics um, it's an elected position so you have a mandate because you have to be elected by a whole house of commons labor people scots nats whoever it may be liberals etc and um you can the, the committee uh, you have i've got some great members and they care they come to every meeting and it's all party and it's amazing although you see us bashing each other every week in big parliamentary occasions you know we've got some real different conservative and labor mps and yet we all work together we produced that report together collectively that wasn't me that was the committee and also as a committee chair you can say what you want and i can i'm a little bit unconventional at times i love not being in a straitjacket i love not being dependent on anyone you know dependent on the phone call every time there's a reshuffle and uh, so, and you can campaign and change things. And although you can't make policy as such, you can change policy. And we've done a fair whack of that over the years. We focused on exclusions, focused on children's special educational needs, a campaign for value for money for universities, um, promoted degree apprenticeships. So it's a great, uh, it's a wonderful position to have. I'm very lucky to do it. So I'm not kind of, I don't envy the decisions that the Secretary of State has to make. Uh, because it's it is much harder than it looks. Compiling a select committee report and, and getting a committee to agree on it isn't always easy. And there've been select committee reports in the past where members of a committee have said, actually, I think, you know, this was a Labour dominated committee and I don't agree with the findings. Have you had that sort of issue yet or has it all been fairly harmonious um, and unanimous? So far, I mean, obviously it's a different committee in 2019 compared to the, diff- the committee in 20. 20- 17 to uh, 19 um sorry 20 yeah so it's 2017 to 2019 and 20 uh, 2020 this year is a new one the only uh, member who is on it who was on it before is ian Mearns, who's a labor mp he's a wonderful mp and um, probably very different in our politics but he cares passionately about education he's very wise and um uh, very lucky to have him he's sort of uh, looks after the committee if i'm not there for one reason or another um i we've been lucky it never happened we had some vigorous discussions and there would be some members who bring through a lot of amendments and then you discuss them and vote on them but we've been very lucky that we've all agreed it's never happened it's been my passion and intention to try and not have disagreement because you're always going to be paragraphs that some people disagree some people agree with and um it's so much more effective, has so much more influence if it's an all, called an all-party committee that it goes unanimously. It makes such a difference. But you, of course, we do change because what you have to do, these reports, first of all, the, there's a draft. I go through the draft with the officers. These are the civil servants of the House of Commons in a big way. I make the amendments. 
um, then that then is presented to the committee and literally you, you go through paragraph by paragraph and everyone has to be happy with paragraph by paragraph. So what the, you don't always see behind the scenes is how much work goes into these things. And if there are a lot of amendments, so a lot of paragraphs, uh, the actual consideration of the report can take an enormously long time. But actually, it's been okay uh, with, with us. We've, we've gone through it. They've worked hard on it, the members. And, um, and you know, we produce, I'm very, the most, the thing I'm most proud of actually is not the exam. The exam report was incredibly important, but the most important report, in fact, I think the most important thing I've ever done in my life is in politics is the report on special educational needs. And um, it's had an impact. Um, told parents who have children with special educational needs that people were listening to them and uh, we're going to do more work on that if, if i had to point to one thing i'm most proud of as mp it's that report it was the one of the biggest ever inquiries of any select committee uh, we had hours and hours of evidence 700 submissions or something it may have been the biggest ever inquiry but we we know it's one of the biggest but we um and i'm a hope we will just want it to make an impact there's another report that uh, hasn't, I don't, as far as I'm aware, hasn't received any submissions yet, which is the inquiry into left behind white pupils from disadvantaged groups. Very interesting uh, subject to, to focus on. And uh, a lot of people listening would have a, a great deal of sympathy with it, including myself. Is it helpful though to, when we talk about intersectionality so much now in, in terms of how we understand the impact of all sorts of different policy outcomes on different groups, is it helpful to just, focus on white pupils or, or should that have had a broader remit well um, first of all the major policy of the committee is uh, this year our strategy going forward is and it was agreed by all members is um looking at left behind people in education addressing social injustice and the, you know the ladder of opportunity that i talked about and we're doing different groups so we're going to look at geography we're going to look at other groups like uh, some Roma groups and, and so on that also have disadvantage. But we started off with white working class boys and girls. People think it's just boys. Boys do worse, but actually it's both because they do under, you know, in many cases, uh, they have been left behind in the, in the education system. And so the stats bear that out. So um, that's why um, we're starting off with that. But we're going to look at other groups. We're going to look at geography. Um, as we go on throughout the year. But I, I don't think we can sweep issues under the carpet uh, for, for doing that. I've been called racist bizarrely for, uh, and I said, what, what is racist about it? Explain. Um, and, uh, but we can't sweep things under the carpet just because people on Twitter are going to be unhappy about it. Well, if you if you did things based on what people on Twitter liked or didn't, you would never, you would never do anything. Yeah. And uh, yes, I think that's a good... Uh, I should say some people on Twitter, because there are nice course. people. There are lots of nice very good people on, on Twitter. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned the ladder of opportunity a few times. I remember in the wake of the 2017 general election, you wanted the Tory party to rebrand and have the ladder as its logo, um, which would be, I, I guess, the, you, there was the torch for a while, there was the tree, which felt very Cameronian or Cameroonian, depending on um, how you choose to label his supporters. I mean, what sort of ladder did you did you ever get down to designs? What sort of ladder would it be? Would it? Um, well, actually, well, for, I, we have the tree thing. It looks like a bit of broccoli. I mean, it's just <laughs> but broccoli's good for you. I, I love, love trees. trees. <laughs> I love trees, and um, uh, uh, don't get me wrong. I, if my, the happiest thing is if I'm looking at mountains and trees or whatever, there's nothing gives me. I, I don't need to go to some exotic place. I go to a forest or a mountain any day of the week. And look at trees but um uh, symbol means nothing um and to me uh conservatism everything about conservatism is is getting people up that ladder it's bringing people to the ladder but i wanted hands around the ladder not just a ladder because you've got to show the hands that represent government yes you bring people to the ladder you help them climb up and you have a safety net if they fall off that ladder but we have to bring them to the ladder those not everyone could climb up I'd be crap. I've got rubbish legs, so problems with my legs. I, I couldn't climb up a ladder. But um, you have to be be there. And um, actually, the BBC a few years ago did an interview, and they did some fantastic graphics on it. I think it's somewhere on the BBC website if I look hard enough. But um, uh, I would love us. I would love us because we have to tell a story. Uh, and the problem with um, conservatism is no one knows what we're about. They just think we're about the economy and rich people. 
and whereas if you are a Labour person, even though I don't agree with the policies, and even if they, even if the public think that they mess up, they say, well, at least the heart's in the right place because they're there for the underdog. Mm. You know, they're, but we are, we do have a powerful story to tell, actually, and we never tell a story about what our philosophy and belief is. It's all technocracy, and the algorithm is just such a, you know, the worst extreme of what you know everyone imagines is, you know, government by technocrats and data scientists and god knows what uh, and no um, and yet we've got a very powerful story and people in government they don't like stories for some reason they don't like narrative and we, we need to change our language um our symbol i'll keep at it like a crazy person on a bus on the top deck of a bus shouting at residents and maybe who know uh, passengers one day we'll get a ladder who knows but if you if you compare the fortunes of the two parties Labour, you're right, talks about its values a lot, tells its own story, romances its history, is emotional about its own identity. The Tories less so, but the Tories win. And maybe that's because the public actually aren't that keen on parties that talk about their values too much. I don't agree with that. I think, first of all, Labour are very, very strong still in parts of the country. I also think that they, if you remember, right up until we didn't win a majority. Uh, I mean, even in 2010, we didn't win a majority. In 2015, we had a tiny majority. In, I'm not trying to be a doom monger here, by the way. In 2017, we lost our majority. And this was after, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and Gordon Brown and so on. So, and years of Labour. So this idea that suddenly it's the Conservative century, um, 20, this century, I don't hold that with uh, at all. And I also think that the new Labour Party, or uh, he is changing it in a big way, Keir Starmer. And I think he's going to keep us on our toes. And he's changing the Labour Party by stealth. He's got to do a lot more uh, to kind of, because people still have that sort of, the kind of Corbyn effect is still there. And the members in the country are Corbynistas and so on. But he is going to change that party. He's going to turn it, in my view, into a social democratic party, which is where a lot of the British people are, actually. They want a small, they don't want a big state. They don't want heavy taxes, but they want strong public services. And um, I think we underestimate him big time, to be honest. Um, and I want him, the more stronger he is, I think the better it is for us because we've had it too easy far too long with Corbyn. And uh, I want uh, every Tory, Tory knowing that these guys are coming for us. So we're less complacent and we don't have the kind of disasters we've had over the last couple of weeks. I know other interviewers have put this to you before, but people listening to this will be thinking... You kind of sound like a Labour guy, I know, because of your background and you talk about the influence of your father, you're Conservative. But there probably is a parallel universe in which you joined the Labour Party. Well, the problem with Labour Party is that they always believe the state is the answer to everything. Um, and I believe I'm a Conservative because I do where in the DNA of every Conservative is you want to cut taxes. I want to cut taxes for the lower paid, but I want to cut taxes. Um, um, I also believe that things should come from this ladder that comes from the bottom. You climb up from the bottom, not from the state downwards. And I believe in community and tradition, not because I'm an old fuddy-duddy, but just because I believe that tradition provides an anchor from one generation to the next and gives people a bit of stability. Um, And I find that uh, uh, the the Labour Party also make no hard choices because everything there's money for. Now, you may say Rishi Sunak has been uh, the new Corbyn. You know, he's even paying for our dinners now. Uh, (laughs) Our price at McDonald's or whatever. Very uh, good fun. Although we'll all be paying paying it back next year in our taxes when they get up. So this isn't free money. But nevertheless, um, they never make hard choices at all. Um, uh, I I come from a Jewish background and I, I, I always find them to be very... Well, after the Corbyn years were just awful for Jewish people, and uh, uh, that's not partly political, really awful. And I do find that they have some, they have a visceral hatred of the state of Israel for some reason, a lot of them, not all of them. Keir Starmer is much better and he's changing it. And I was very glad that he got, that he made the decision about Rebecca Long-Bailey, because I think that was an important uh, signal. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and I do believe in the conservative ideals of aspiration. And you, if you work hard, do the right thing. Yeah, that to me is what conservatism, you'll get on in life. And 
and so on. But um, I do also believe in a mixed economy. I'm not a kind of libertarian. I was when I was a student, but, um, but I, I believe in a mixed economy. I want, I want a strong NHS. I want us to spend money on it. I want good schools at the end of the road that parents can send their kids to. Um, and uh, uh, I just believe that there is a role. I believe in good government. It's not big government or small government. I just believe in good government. And if you take, for example, take maintain nurseries. They do incredible. They have great um, results from Ofsted. Why on earth aren't we supporting them more? I mean, they're always worrying about funding it. They all have good results. And that's an example of the state working well. So we should celebrate it, not be afraid of celebrating it. But this sounds quite new labour. There must have been a period from 1997 to maybe 2007, if not 2010, where you were coming of age and, you know, standing for Parliament and thinking, actually, I, I don't feel too no, out of labour at that No, time. no, because I was more like we in those days. Oh, Blair, right, okay. <laughs> I was still, when Blair first got in 97, I was still, so I think I'd just finished being a student, but I was like hardcore. Me, oh, um, me and a few of us, Sanchez Javid, Tim Montgomery, we were libertarians, not, not on all the authoritarian side. Uh, Sajid, uh, Tim Montgomery used to edit Con Home. Uh, David Burrows, former MP. Nikki, Nikki, Aitken, uh, Nikki Aitken, who was called Nikki Durbin at the time. She's now the MP for the City of Westminster. And she was the blueprint editor, the editor of the magazine of our ex-university conservatives. So we were hardcore. But um, you, are you, what, if you're not hardcore as a student, what's the point of living um, or having fun? But I think my constituency changed my politics quite a bit. And I'm very glad for that, actually, because I realised, you know, just that you need a good, uh, a good government and you need public services and we should invest in them. Um, but I, I still, you know, conservatism has been my tribe. It's like a family. It's a dysfunctional family, but it's a family nevertheless. How much of your, you talk very passionately about the NHS. How much of that is based on your personal experience of having cerebral palsy, those operations leading into uh, osteoarthritis, you've had to use a lot of uh, state healthcare in your life. Is, is that, does that sort of underpin your mission? Well, um, uh, Great Ormond Street Hospital. Uh, well, I mean, just, uh, I, I mean, when I was originally, uh, um, di when I first was born, of course, we're now talking, I was born in 69. So, at the time, I, th I remember my father telling me the doctors sent them letters saying I couldn't walk as a child. You know, I was a very late walker and saying that I would do nothing with my life and so on. Because that's the way they thought in those days. And then my father took me to this amazing professor in Great Ormond Street Hospital. I mean, what's an incredible hospital. Uh, and they, he changed my life because he did a load of operations. And uh, he was called um, Professor Lloyd Roberts. I'll never forget him. And then I had another other other great people um, even a doctor from denmark a professor from denmark i'm not in great ormond street in another hospital and he did amazing things so i had lots of op ops and things so i was very very lucky very very lucky um but I, I i actually so i deeply care about the nhs but it isn't because i see it from my own experience i i remember going to um it's not just from my own experience but others to our um to, to a day centre because uh, at the time my then girlfriend was having a day operation and everyone was waiting hours and hours uh, longer than they should have done for their day care thing and um, so I was sitting there and the phone didn't work or anything so you couldn't look at your phone or whatever you just had to sit there and I started watching everyone as they came out even though everyone was three or four hours delayed having to pay extra parking fees. And there were these like, you know, lottery balls where you put these balls in a thing and you could say the, the service was excellent or good or poor or whatever. Every single person, young, old, rich, poor, however they looked, uh, whatever background, put their balls in the excellent or good in the daycare thing. And I'd watched this for hours on end, literally. And did, I, I just thought there was an umbilical cord between the British people and the National Health Service. I, this may sound like a crazy story, but it's genuinely true. And uh, it wasn't a eureka moment because I've always believed in the NHS. But I remember the, the British people want an NHS. Uh, they believe in the NHS. It's got to be funded properly. Um, and uh, we should be proud of it. It's not all, there are always things that go wrong, but that's, the British people want it this way. It doesn't matter what background, and most people, unless you're a mega rich person, 
who do, um, most people want it however successful they've been in their lives and how you know even if they have modest wealth they just want a national health service and you you've overcome personal adversity to not just become a member of parliament which is in itself a hugely impressive thing for any individual to achieve but to become chair of a select committee and who knows what next um do you think i mean everyone has political ambition but you know do you do you sometimes think that actually the conservatives of you talk about the ladder it would be easier for you to become leader of with even with your sort of background leader of the tory party than leader of the labor party um well, first of all, I wouldn't genuinely, not in a million years, want those jobs, uh, genuinely. I'm not saying under foreseeable circumstances or whatever politicians say to you, because I know what I'm good at and what I'm not. Um, and I, um, I like to be, uh, I'm not in favour of positive discrimination. Um, I like, uh, the thing I've always been attracted to my party, it's a meritocracy. And... Uh, Sometimes you have to do things so you, you know that you can't just put an A performance. You've got to put on an A plus performance or A star. But um, I would rather it that way and to know I've got my job on merit, not because of a quota. And, and what, what does the future hold for you then? Because, I mean, obviously you have a very important job at the moment, but you're a young MP. You've got plenty of road left. I mean, do you, do you think it'd be, it'd be nice to make the transition from select committee to cabinet or is that not the way you... Well, I was very bruised. I was in cabinet in 2015 um, as deputy chair of the party and I was a minister of state for apprenticeship. So that was a great job. Um, so I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm very, very lucky to be doing this job. The committee chair, you know, I'm, I'm saying this to you genuinely. It's an amazing job because you scrutinise, but you also can be a power's ideas and it suits my campaigning temperament. And I can say what I want. I can do podcasts like this. I mean, if I was a minister, yeah. if you contact me and say, Rob, will you do a podcast? I'd have to get it cleared by 300 people. And then they'd take six weeks to reply. And then I'd have to be so bland with my answers and just have some government score sheet on that. So there's big disadvantages, although, of course, you do make policy and it's a privilege. And I, but I'm serving my country, my constituency. I love, I live here, I only have one house. Um, I know that's unusual. <laughs> I'm very lucky to be here. I love the town, um, Harlow. So, uh, I think rather than just there are some people I know in politics when they get these great positions, they're never happy. No, they're always thinking, What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And you can see it on their faces. And I think, What is wrong with you? You've just been made minister for X, or you just and yet you want something else, give it a break. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. I'm very lucky to be doing what I'm doing and uh, it plays to my strengths. Um, I've learned so much about education. It's a massive area because you're looking at everything from children in care right up to apprenticeships in universities and adult learning and everything in between. Um, so I don't, I'm fortunate not to have to think like that. And it's lovely not to depend on the call. You know, when these calls happen, everyone looking at the phones for five, every five seconds. That's a great uh, thing because I don't depend on them. No, but there must be part of you that wonders if the phone's going to ring on, on reshuffle day. Well, because I've done it in the past, it's much less than, than it was because it's not like I'm hankering to get somewhere. When I was in cabinet, it was an amazing experience of my life and uh, 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 absolutely incredible. I'll never forget it. But I've, I was lucky. I've done a year. Uh, how many people can say that? So how can I complain? You know, how can I be on the phone all the time? And then and don't forget, by the way, even if you get appointed, you can get removed. And so you're waiting on the phone the following year to see whether you're getting given the, he the heave ho. So is it really, you know, you've got to weigh all these things up in your mind. Taken back control of your own career. Oh, you, you, I'm, in, I'm in control of my own destiny, at least, yeah. Robert, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, I've loved it. Well, there you go, Robert Halfon. I really wanted to go through the report line by line, but I realised that would have not been perhaps the best audio experience. Uh, it might have become a bit too technical and uh, rigid, and it was good to talk about other things. But it's incredible when you read that report, even if you just read the summary and the conclusions. Just a handful of pages. This could have been seen coming a mile off, and... This is why, and what's great about the system we have is these select committee reports, the select committee system that allows these parties, MPs from all parties, and, and Robert Halfman is a Conservative MP, of course, 
to scrutinise this stuff and to put reports out there that hold the government to account. And the fact that was published six weeks ago and the Secretary of State says they're only aware of these issues at the weekend, you really wonder what on earth has gone on. But it was brilliant talking to Robert um, about his life, about his philosophy, about the way he thinks about politics, which I think will resonate with, with, with quite a few of you particularly the way he talks about the way the Conservatives don't really talk about their values and the the, the way that they talk about their own politics, which I, that stuff I find always uh, endlessly interesting. Uh, indeed, if these issues resonate with you, you might like to buy my book, Politically Homeless, which if you haven't heard the last few episodes, I apologise in advance. I'm going to just mention them. I'm going to mention it on every episode until it's published because of course I've got to and I know a lot of you got in touch during the lockdown and wanted to um help the show in some way um so I thought you know you could you could buy the book is is a way of doing it there's a link in the in the blurb in the show notes to pre-order a signed copy uh, through Blackwells uh, there will be an audiobook as well um, but it's called Politically Homeless and it's a comedic take on how politics has got to shit and a bit of a memoir about my time in politics as well um, defined usually, uh, usually, um, by uh, frankly me failing to pretty much win any campaign that I was involved in, um, and a few little tips that I've picked up uh, along the way as well. So, politically homeless is available to pre-order now. Um, if you listen to the show, which um, you are now currently doing, I imagine it'd be up your street. So there you go. It comes out on the eighth of August or eighth of October. God, it comes out on the eighth of October. But it's available to pre-order now. That is all I shall say for this week. I've got some great guests lined up. Um, so stay well. Uh, stay as positive as you can. And I'll see you next week. ta Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.